With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
You are listening to the Underground Professor. High atop a double rainbow, gaily swinging my feet as it arches over the Hermitage of North Texas's liberal conservative studies. I have my Redskins hat on. Mike Jones won the game. <laughs> that figures. At, uh, that's for the Ken McClinton, the exceptional conservative out of Washington, D.C. Hey, guys, welcome. We got a special guest tonight. Zarina is in the other chat room on Blog Talk Radio if you want to join her. And tonight I have Sean Michael. Did I get your name right? Yeah, oh, good. exactly right. Because exactly right. all their names are after saints, and they're hyphenated, and they have, they sound the same. So uh, uh, his brother's name. So people are always getting them confused, but I got it right, so I win. All right, tonight I have Sean Michael Pigeon from All Saints Episcopal School, and we're going to talk about France. It's history and battle. It's um, the French Maginot lines, Maginot. And we're going to talk about the board game that he invented over that. Zarina, can you hear us okay in the chat room? Light is too bright. Let me get rid of that. How's that? There we go. Yeah, I can't do much about that other one, though. <laughs> it just looks like I'm in like a, yeah. like I'm an angel from heaven. It's like just streaming down. There you go. Let's move that. The light. Okay. That yeah. Uh, let's see. Maybe I can fix that. Hold on. I don't know if you'll be able to see your papers, huh? I'll be fine. All right. How's that? That'd be better. Oh, now it went to light, low light mode, though. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I don't think it's going to get better. Yeah, we might have just made it worse, yeah, everybody. That's all right. Okay. Hold you on. You really need to see my face. There we go. Anyway. Yeah. Not, not something we want to see. <laughs> that's why we do radio. Exactly. Exactly. Face to radio. I get, I get told that often. All right. So this young man I know from my church. And he is a child prodigy, or a progeny. I'm not sure which, but he's one of those. I'm a child. Yes. At least we can we can we can ascertain <laughs> at least that. Yeah, he is he is a progeny. Oh, prayers for Teresa's family. Oh, her aunt passed away. No, don't tell me that. Okay, Teresa's family. Everybody, uh, her aunt passed away this morning from cancer. So. We sent out our prayers for her and her family, and may the aunt spend perpetual time in his light, and may um, she enter his heavenly kingdom. Literally just found out, ah, man, hate to open up a show, Amanda, like that, but, you know, life is like that. It only sucks for those of us who remain. <laughs> those, those that leave, they're actually the winners, and it's hard for us to remember that. In his name. So it's bitter to it, sink to it, fill it to you. Amen. Amen to that. All right. And, uh, and by the way, uh, Addie is doing much better. As soon as she'll eat, they're letting her out of the hospital. So I'll be, uh, I've been there most of the last two days uh, for my future daughter in law. <laughs> uh, I'm tired. I slept through church this morning. Normally I don't do that until the, um, uh, well, until the sermon, but today I didn't even get up for church. I slept all the way through it. And, um, so, okay, Sean Michael, Olive and Hendon are here and Athena, uh, but they're on the floor today. We got Sean Michael, and he's going to talk about some history of French in the battle. And good news for anybody, um, thank you, thank you. Good news, at the end of the show, we have some French, uh, official French rifles, they're for sale, 
They've never been fired, only dropped once, and they come with their own white flag. So that, <laughs> that's an incredible deal. <laughs> yes. So that was an old joke when I was in the Air Force. Yeah. 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 Have, you seen, like, have you seen a picture of a Swiss Army knife and they have a French Army knife that just comes up with, with a white flag? Yeah, and yeah. a toothpick. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Okay. So, Sean, t- t- tell us a little bit about you. Okay. Uh, background. Um, Plans for education and whatnot, what you're going to do, how you're going to take over the world. Just, yeah, that's, that's a major component. Have you hooked up with Pinky yet? I have not. Okay. That's, going to be, that, that, <laughs> that's another step, maybe, maybe another hurdle after this. Sean's a little hard to, go, to go. I have to get through. Um, so, oh, Mr. Jones is fiddling a little bit with that, the microphone, trying to get my. Tell me now, Mary. Can you guys hear him better? Zombies. <laughs> Zombies. Okay. Well, I'll just speak up a little bit because I can, I can, I can do that. Um, so, um, just a little bit about me. I'm an 18-year-old. I'm a senior at All Saints Episcopal School in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, I originate from. I was born, I guess, in uh, Michigan. I was uh, right on the uh, the tip of Lake Huron. So that's like it's, if Michigan's like a little palm, it's like right in the thumb there. So All right, let, let me point out for everybody on uh, radio that can't see his hand Yeah, that, <laughs> that a typical Michigander will hold up their hand. So long or for four years. So I actually do that myself and okay. I've never really lived there, but for parents weekends, but yeah. uh, you're, so you're up there near Dearbornistan. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, so it's just like about 40 minutes outside Detroit. So, um, I moved down to here when I was about, uh, six or seven and I was enrolled in all Saints Episcopal school. Um, right now I'm, uh, uh, I'm getting ready to apply to some Ivy league colleges. Um, looking at like Princeton and Yale pretty hard. Um, my brother's at Yale. Yes. So, um, so you should go to Harvard so, and start a rivalry. Exactly. Or yes. or what my brother said is that um, he could probably get me into Yale a little easier. Yeah, legacy. So yeah. like, a, like a legacy. So that's, well, you that's should look at Hillsdale, option. too. It's Ivy yeah. level. And yeah. It doesn't take any federal money. That's and true. the statues on that campus are Ronald Reagan and yeah. Churchill. <laughs> you should well, really yeah. put that. So, um, but only go there if you're ready to study. They right. say they put it. In, in Hillsdale, Michigan, because it's the coldest spot on earth, <laughs> and you have to really want to learn to go there. So, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, the cold helps that you're not doing anything but studying. Yeah. You're sitting inside the whole. That's all right. Time. Trapped in. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're <laughs> trapping you with the books. Is the point. Um, so, anyways, college applications are going out for that, and that's going to be uh, a real adventure, um, I should say. Um, last summer, I was I took some classes at Harvard Summer School. Um, on the Cold War, which is kind of um, looking into what I want to do uh, post um, post graduation of high school, and on international competence cooperation. So, um, so you want to get involved in the Cold War? Well, and I don't want to get involved in the Cold War, but I do want to study um, like European history, European politics. I want to go get a PhD in something like that, and then the end goal is to be some kind of like professor or some kind of teacher. Oh, yes. Look there. Yes. That's this who's is, looking at you. That's that, that's better. I'm, I'm not talking. You're not my audience right now. Right. Sorry. Um, so um, looking a little bit at uh, European history, European politics, and um, how that kind of shapes the way that honestly a lot of a lot of the politics of the day are, um, because because what, what what you learn about in the Cold War, at least one of the one of the things that we really um, one of the things we really stressed about it was 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's going to get difficult to try to adjust that camera. Um, one of the, one of the things that you really learn about the Cold War is how much it really fundamentally shapes how we view things today, and that's really the biggest biggest takeaway I even took from that class was just how much the past really did. No, no, it, it, it's not something that even that you even really think about because the Cold War was not that far ago. I mean, it was just um, – <laughs> it was basically just, what, 30, 40 years ago. So yeah, that's not like – that's not history. That's like people lived during that, and so my mom lived during that. So it's, it's really interesting. Oh, someone's Oh, cool. yeah. Oh, Sorry God, about good that. thing she's not that's here. That's not – I am glad <laughs> we can't edit it. This is live this radio. This is live radio. <laughs> that's not good, but um, – but anyway, like, 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 you know, you don't think about that. And so, um, she's just a baby. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, not, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I love you, mom. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so you don't really think about that as in history, but, um, but you really see when you dig down into the statistics, you dig down into, into the themes about how much we're shaped by something that's just very recent. So that's really, um, that was really interesting. Um, but just, uh, overall of what I'm kind of, wanting to talk about today is that um maybe transitioning into that um obviously i do want to go over the battle of france and politics some themes that gwen talked in um talk a little bit about how um they shaped what was the greatest and most terrible war that we've ever had to go through as a human as a human species but um and then transitioning that into the present in terms of what can we do with this information so that's kind of um that's kind of what the board game aspect of what I tried to create um, moves into that because, you know, you take what you learned in the past, and that's, that's great, and that's fun. It's really interesting. But um, ultimately, that's got to shape how we live in the here and now, and that's, try to, that's the question. That's the, that's the goal that the board game tries to really – So you created a board game about the World War II, the Battle of France. Yes, yeah. And you've added a dimension that a lot of games don't, and that's the political aspects. Yes, definitely. Yeah, we have a – we have a um, a different kind of mindset about what a board game should do. Excuse me, uh, about war, what a board game should be, and I try to not try to like replay the war, not try to replay exactly what's happening, but trying to put you in the situations in which they did. And part of that is definitely the politics of the time. Mm-hmm. That's part of that is definitely how are how do you respond to what your opponent or what the uh, the 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 zeitgeist of the area is going of of the time is because right. that's really what that's really what's important. It's not it's not dates. It's not facts. It's not statistics. Well, it is that, but but also like it's it's how can how can we take this information? What were the circumstances that caused things that happened? That's really what we're trying to get at. Yeah. So I think that's well, a perfect example. Is, I won't steal any of your choices from uh, uh, from France, but a perfect example of politics was peace in our time with. Chamberlain and mm-hmm. Churchill yeah, over the in England. Conference. Yeah, right. yeah. That's actually that's a perfect segue, honestly, into the history of the Battle of France. Because um I mean if you wanna talk about um we, we talk about like like Munich conferences, which were obviously in the when we look back on it, one of the biggest failures of, you know, of modern politics in terms of the policy of, of appeasement. But if you look at it, like interestingly enough, the all of the major social commenters or the political commenters Considered to be a great success, um, people considered that you know Chamberlain had had achieved what no one else could conceivably do, which is actually stop a world war. And so he was the blitzkrieg. He, he, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, the blitzkrieg of, of the time. So it's funny that that we what what was once considered this massive 
uh, success is now one of the one of the biggest failures you've ever seen. Right. Um, now we got a question in the chat room. Okay. Asked if I caught it. I didn't catch it all, but it, uh, are you thinking that we're going back to war? Is what I believe they ask you over there. Um. That's better on the picture, guys. What, what was the question of going to war? You might want to type it in again because it flew by and I missed it. At. Um, but I think they're asking if you think that that area of Europe we're going to be in a war um, again soon. That area of Europe is increasingly um, tenuous. I do agree with that. But I don't think that – I'm not exactly um, – another Cold War era, yeah. Um, I think that that could happen in the sense of the economic warfare that might, that might uh, occur through uh, either us versus China or us versus Russia mm-hmm. or us versus Japan in terms of, in terms of the economics. Whether I believe that we'll have another um, nuclear arms race to the point where you know you have to have kids underneath desks and and duck and cover, I don't think so. Mainly because I think that we've already gone through that, and, and we know that that's not gonna work. that's not mutually assured destruction is not a viable yeah. thing that you can either sell well, to the public. It did or work. Other, well, it did. It did yeah. work. But it won't work. But with it places like Iran. No, I don't think so. So economic sanctions, economic warfare, I think is going to be the new form of. Of actual warfare, right. rather than rather than having to roll in tanks necessarily. I mean, there's there's some. There was a I did a, a conference um, in Washington D.C. on um, it was some form of uh, defense and how the, the the new wave of defense was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And he said that um, one of the problems is that with all these digital tanks, all these the tanks have all the digitalized um, computer systems mm-hmm. that cyber warfare. Knocking out someone's infrastructure in terms of the electricity that is necessary to generate right. um, EMP. EMPs and stuff yeah. like that. That might be a new avenue of warfare that we haven't even really seen before. And we we practice that. We yeah. also uh, that's what I did in the Air Force. Uh, the last part of my career was I was in electronic warfare, mm-hmm. and we were in C three CM aircraft, which is command control communications countermeasures. And what it did was we jammed enemy communications and stuff. And so these digital tanks, we'd shut them down or spoof them or make them turn on their enemy and stuff. Yeah. And uh, so that's coming. And, and all you cyber hacker youths, you know, are going to hack these things. And I, I don't think we're going to see a Cold War where we build up a NATO and do it again like that. Yeah, no, I, I think that we've kind of done that and realized yeah. with the that consequences. Was for its of time. That. Yeah, that's yeah. for its time. But it, it's a cyber. A cyber kind of warfare, a cyber kind of um, yeah. of tensions, at least, is definitely a possibility, especially given well, the, more than a possibility. Not more a possibility, honestly. Perry said that we're going to launch a cyber attack on Russia for it'll release in all the Hillary Clinton's emails. Yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, which is kind of dumb to uh, to admit that we're going to do it, but yeah. that's not always the the, uh, the best idea to admit to your enemy what you're possibly going to do. Right, but um. But definitely, that that will be the new wave, or either that or economic sanctions. Although those seem to be um, it's sometimes not wholly effective. Um, you can see those th- those two being the major possibilities of the new era hmm. of warfare. So that that's that's definitely an interesting topic to think about. I can still remember crawling under desks in the '60s, as if it would matter. But you know, we did what we were told. We were kids. Yeah. The idea was those metal desks would hold up debris that would fall on us. You know, yeah. And we mm-hmm. might have a chance to crawl out. It, we really didn't. The myth that it was going to save us from nuclear attack is not. Uh, it's not really was a structural thing. They were, you know, made out of iron back then instead of plexiglass and, and paper clips like they are today. And and, uh, and the idea was it would give you a bubble. Yeah. Over you, uh-huh. but yeah. But uh, but I can still remember that was a weird time. The yeah. Russians, instead of crawling under desks, issued everybody a sugar pill. 
and told them to take the pill in case of nuclear attack by America and that it would prevent radiation poisoning. It, mm. it was just a sugar pill, too. Yeah. But, you know, the public believed it. Boom shelters, exactly. I think, so, I think part, of that, I, part of that idea for both on the Russians and our side is just to try to keep the fears down because, yeah. I mean, the public outcry would have been enormous if, you, if we knew even well, like what – I mean, in Russia, if they knew uh, many of the things, that there would have been the, you know, mass panic. I think that part of, part of the governmental structure was to try to abate that and not to – Well, ironically, it wasn't like, – like America wasn't doing it to abate the fears of Americans about what Russia would do. It was, it was, it was more – it was deeper than that, and Russia too. They had to control the emotions of their populations, both Americans and, and yeah. Russians – so that we didn't push the government into a war mm. with our, you know, our, our, our emotions. Right. And if the public was demanding it, the politicians, you know, they always run out and get in front of a parade. And, uh, and so we were afraid. It was, and this is a model of the American Revolution, which is why it was successful. And the French Revolution, a yes. segue back to, <laughs> to that, <laughs> yeah. no, it wasn't. So yep. we controlled our mouths. And they okay. could not. So back to you on France. Okay, yeah. So the, um, a little bit of a rocky transition, but back to France in 1940. Um, so I do want to try to address uh, two major misconceptions, which I find are fairly prevalent in the uh, in the in the the zeitgeist of what of what people think about France. Is one that the actual uh, French soldiers were really like we already we even made we've made we've even made a joke about this just to begin. This debate, uh, this little conversation, which was that the the French soldiers are all cowards and they all ran away and mass mass hysteria, and that's yeah. that's true to an ex- to an extent. There were three hundred thousand people who surrendered to a veritable division uh, led by Heinz Guderian in um at in June. But if you look at like the just if you look at just straight up, if you had French soldiers versus German soldiers in a fair fight. Usually the French soldiers were able to hold their own on on the on the majority of the times. The difference is, is in the leadership of the French versus the leadership of the German army. Um, the French leadership, I have a an interesting little anecdote about this. The uh, the French leadership did not necessarily trust one another very much, and um, because of that, they had this thing called chateau generalship, which was mm-hmm. a man sits by himself. He writes out his own order. He sends it out to his own carry, couriers who drives out to his own place. And he does his own thing. Um, so this method of trying to get anything done was so haphazard. That there was a, a time during, during the French battle where Maurice Gamelin, who's the French leader, French, French commander-in-chief, he's located in Paris. Um, the, the general army headquarters was located in a very remote town called Montre, which was 35 miles east. Mm-hmm. There was the field commander who was located 12 miles west of Paris. So that's not just, even on the field. That's, that's yeah. not even on the field yeah. or in the direction of the General Army headquarters. And then there was the Air Force commander who was just in a completely different location 12 miles somewhere else. So I, I don't even know where he was. But because, that's okay because, because the planes fly from there to wherever the action is. So that's, that's the only one. That's the only one that makes that any sense. sense yeah. But, but mm-hmm. what you have to also realize is that none of these People are coordinating anything right. together because they're sending messengers through couriers on, on motorcycles to each other. They're not even using radios at this point. So the, and aside to that is that's what we did to the Iraqis when I went to Desert Storm. We really? shut them down electronically, and oh, so their centralized command didn't work, so they mm-hmm. split it out, and they put everybody on bicycles and jeeps and, and motorcycles to right. get their messages on paper out yeah. uh, because they couldn't yeah. communicate. And that just kind of harkens yeah. back to the idea of electronic warfare being so pivotal in the yeah. coming years. Um, 
And this was very effective because the French couldn't do anything. No, no the French, coordinate their coordinate coordination effort. was so bad. In fact, there was um, one time there was a breakthrough at Sedan near the Ardennes Forest. I think we all – then there might be some um, idea about how Germany won, which was they broke through this very dense forest. No one thought they could do it. Mm. They, they pierced through it, and everyone just kind of went, went, to, went to the wayside after that. But there was one time in which they were trying to make a, a, a counterattack after the Battle of, uh, of Stone. They they had they built up all their forces and then they were like oh wait let's not do this because the French were incredible the French leadership was very indecisive um, let's not do that and they pull all the resources back but then they just forgot to tell an entire division that they just weren't doing the attack and so this this one poor division just went in by itself and got a totally obliterated yeah so like that's just a very minor example of just the entire war. It encapsulates the microcosm of the entire battle in terms of French leadership unable to 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 accurately ascertain where the Germans were or how are their strength and then they um their dysfunction at actually getting anything done is just very apparent very soon when you actually study how, how things worked. Now the big Maginot lines were supposed to protect them and so their entire mm-hmm. philosophy was we don't have to do anything. We're safe. Yeah, the the entire philosophy was the idea that if you can, and and this is honestly, I I give them kind of I give them a pass on this because during World War One the idea was very much you sit in your trench, and you wait for the other guy to attack you. No man's land. You put up some barbed wire. You're gonna be fine. And generally that worked out for the French. Generally it did. The problem happens is when um, you had this mechanized theory of warfare, the Blitzkrieg that we're right. going to talk about, which changed uh, everything. which changed just just everything in in a single battle, which is why it's so interesting to kind of to study. Um, so they built this Maginot line, um, named after Andre Maginot, or Mag- I don't know. It's yeah. some French name that you can pronounce in any way you yeah, want. Maginot. Yeah, we point. call it the Imaginot line. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a good joke. I haven't actually heard that one. I'll, I'll have to use that yeah. whenever I'm at my uh, my European history party. Well, there you go. <laughs> so. Um, so the Maginot Line nearly bankrupted the entire French economy, building this massive structure of I think it was fifty-five thousand tons of steel, oh, that was uh, an incredible yeah. amount. And it, it, like I have already said it like a couple of times, it nearly bankrupted the entire French economy. Yeah, and, for nothing more than a lawn decoration. Exactly. In fact, I think it was only only seventeen of the fifty-five um, major fortification forts were actually taken during warfare. Everything else is just taken once they already collapsed. Yeah, but they so, didn't take them in a frontal battle. No, no, they only they, they only came from them behind. And they came behind. Yeah, came behind, and it's it's it was a very useless line um, in in general, but mainly it was useless because they redirected resources away from what was needed, which was they actually French had a lot of good tanks like the Colossus B1 Bis, mm-hmm. uh, the S- Samoa 3A. These, these are de- these are decent tanks to begin with, but they yeah. didn't. Neither did they have enough of them. Or, or they did not have um, the, and they had enough of them in the sense they had like enough tanks to actually field an army. But the problem was they didn't have the no, the, the, the logistics, dispersed. the right. logistics behind the tanks. The tanks themselves were fairly fairly good. Yeah, they Which, just couldn't go very far. They couldn't go very far. Fuel and, and fuel and everything. Right. Exactly right. So the logistical supply arm that's so needed yeah. for for you to feed functioning army wasn't there. And I don't get that because. If anything, you think the French would have figured that out because of Napoleon, right? Who who you know lost Waterloo and everything basically because of 
of supply lines. Exactly. Yeah. So you think that they have all, yeah. and especially at Borodino in uh, Moscow, one of the oh, reasons yeah. was also because they had they had to retrace their lines because of supply. So yeah. you think that the they Germans are, were learning that lesson again? Yes. <laughs> yes, yeah. they they will learn that lesson very soon. But um, so so you just see that um. It's not necessarily the fact that they built it. The fact of the matter is that they, they redirected so many resources, something that was just it was just outdated. It's not it's not necessary anymore. And um, there there are they are their air force. I'm not going to try to pronounce the Armée de la Air or something like that. Yeah. I'm not going to even try to butcher that French. That French I'm going to offend everybody. But um, so um, but that was completely completely inferior to the German German Stuka dive bombers, the German uh, Heinkels and Messerschmitts, which were com- vastly superior in both speed and maneuverability. Yeah. So so you really see um, that aspect of preparation really um, factoring into how the actual battle was played out. Um, the second misconception that I do kind of want to talk about briefly is we already didn't kind of touch on it briefly, and that's the idea of Blitzkrieg. Um, Blitzkrieg, in my humble opinion, which admittedly You're is talking about my daughter's driving, right? <laughs> well, that's one of the problems. Is the problem is that Blitzkrieg is often used to describe pretty much anything at this point. Yes. Like I've heard it used to describe football games. I've used it. I've heard it used to describe people's uh, teenage daughter's driving ability. Um, I've heard uh, it used in <laughs> almost any context imaginable. And the idea um, of Blitzkrieg as just the tanks themselves moving in a fast and organized manner is not at all what the point of the German army, the German high command was trying to make. No. The idea of Blitzkrieg is a holistic plan in order to use not only um, tanks, but also uh, air, air, air power. Air support. Yeah, air support. Thank you. Uh, air support in a concerted fashion to attack the cities and to attack the supply routes instead of actually engaging the enemy army. So part of this was like, why should we deal with just the the actual army that's going to actually hit us? And you know, if we punch them, they'll hit us back. Shouldn't we attack the cities? We should attack the infrastructure and to where the citizens and the politicians are going to be forced to collapse. And this is a very different idea, really since Sherman in the Civil War. Yeah. Um, the well, last, that's, they that's that's yeah. the last that's the yeah. first time of this total war is really used. Now, obviously, Himmler and those guys said that they got the idea yeah, from, from Sherman. From right? Sherman, and yeah. you know, I mean, because Sherman was obviously very effective in getting his Tecumseh, his Tecumseh, <laughs> which honestly uh, actually was what we named the Sherman tanks after. Yeah. So it's a little bit and ironic in that sense. That it was one <laughs> that they were up against the Blitzkrieg. Yeah. 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 Uh, the idea was to make civilians consider the price of war so bad that, hey, Agador, thanks for doing that. Uh, the price of war so bad that it would make its own government stop, which right. is why they had those bombings. You know, like the, <laughs> Right, you know. yeah, and you even see that. There was a um, – the, the, the German government got some uh, flack from the United States press during the time when we were still technically in neutral, but we were basically the arsenal of democracy, um, which was, by the way, nice job FDR getting that passed. Um, yeah. <laughs> but when we bombed basically the crap out of one of the Netherlands cities, I think it was, um, uh, golly, I forget, a Rotterdam or something like that. We we just the uh, the Germans completely obliterated the entire city, and everyone in the United States was like, that is never been seen before. Right. That's those were civilians, those were kids, those were those were women and children. Those aren't those aren't those aren't people you actually need to be killing. And uh, and the German mindset would have most likely have been something like. Well, that's a warning to all the, the cities that are trying to oppose 
our Panzer divisions, which those are those that's a, that's that's a symbol of what our strength is. Because the idea of Blitzkrieg was to target the cities themselves, the actual population areas, rather than just. I mean, the sexy part of Blitzkrieg is the tanks moving through. You mean you got these these massive fleets of of ships yeah. and and they're they're breaking through lines, breaking through lines yeah. and crashing. That like that's all the fun stuff that you see like in movies and stuff but the actual real blitzkrieg is the attacking of the industry the attacking of the the power line infrastructure that's where and honestly that's a really that was a very smart calculation by the german high command at the time given that france was that one one section they did not try to you know strengthen was Mm -hmm. their infrastructure the logistical supply train Mm -hmm. so given that it was very easy for the french to collapse in a relatively short period of time. And the, if I remember right, the Germans blamed the French underground, the resistance, mm. for why they were targeting civilian population points. But that was the that, pre-plan. That was the plan going in. Yeah, that, yeah. There's, yeah. I mean, like what what the ostensibly a country does during wartime and what its actual motives are are, yeah. are vastly different. At, so yeah, they were um, spinning it while they could. Yeah. <laughs> so, but but you definitely see that. Um, that the the idea of Blitzkrieg is sometimes overused, and that's kind of one of the one of the pet peeves of mine that I have when someone tries to. Uh, there's an Army Navy football game, and it was like a, a the the Blitzkrieg of. <laughs> Even if they don't know what they mean. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well. I, I'll admit I do that sometimes just to sound like I'm smart. You know I mean try to use Good words word. you don't know. You know what I mean? So, um, but so <laughs> talking a little bit about how this this idea of well, what does it really matter in the end? Um, I mean, so so what? I know perhaps the viewers know, the listeners know a little bit more about the idea of Blitzkrieg, but what's that going to necessarily do? How can I how can I do anything with this knowledge? Um, Uh, it's a little hard to explain it sometimes. Um, it's a it's just a group it's a group meeting of of students from the senior class from the high school class. We talk about the um, well what's going on in the election right now. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the views of the candidates? We try to it's a, it's an open style forum debate. It's a nonpartisan. Um, it's a club, nonpartisan yeah. club. It tries to. Um, um, do you want to um, maybe address that? But. Um, so the idea is that it's a not, it's a nonpartisan club that tries to incorporate into a civic discussion both um, both sides of the aisle, and we try to engage. And it sometimes gets fairly heated, but that's the point, right? Is to um, try um, try to you know strengthen your own views and try to do um, through a little bit of a Socratic style of dialogue, or you know you can see if you can try to persuade the others to your own your own positions. So I think that's that's really something that's burgeoning right now and I think that's something that's really important. So it's a given it's like a symposium then, a debate uh-huh, without yeah. being without argumentative and angry. Yeah, I mean like obviously given the especially the nature of this election, it does yeah. get a little a little heated sometimes. But that's not the that's not the point. The point is to try to engage in the in a thoughtful discussion, especially on the importance of voting. Um the the voting trends in America are especially among young voters is cratering right now, and that's really mm-hmm. a problem. Um, Why I wrote do you think a, that is? 
I think it's for two reasons. I think, one, the sheer size of the government is getting to people. Um, when you have <laughs> – Finally. <laughs> well, what I mean by that is 325 million people are in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not exactly sure if that's accurate. <laughs> but it's at it's least – 340. Three, okay, 340. Okay, yeah. well, 300 million plus. Let's just say that. The difference. And of those people, you're half of those vote, right? And you have to take out women and children. So, well, so not, not women and children, but like, like children and people who. Um, no, I think I agree with you. Women <laughs> shouldn't vote either. You heard it here first, folks. Now he makes fun of his mom's age and that she shouldn't vote. That's that. That is just a uh, Freudian slip. Florida, Floridian slip. Floridian slip. Yes. But um, okay. So so you have so you obviously have, you have children and you have people who right. are you know only about who, half, who are not who are not registered. Yeah, they're eligible. To so vote. eligible eligible to vote, but they but and then there's less because they're not they're right exactly they're registered right. Right. So only fifty percent of us, only fifty percent of Americans could vote. Could. Can, could vote. Let's just say that. And it's usually around 41-43% that yeah. show up. Yeah. So so what I'm saying is that even though there's there's a low turnout rate, that's still an incredible amount of people that are voting. At least 100 million, right? Yeah. 100 million, right? And so I feel like that um, a lot of young voters can feel that their voice just isn't simply heard. Yeah. That um, especially if you're in given the way that the electoral college is set up, if you're if you're a Republican in New York, What's the point? Yeah. I mean, you're not going to you're, and I I know that there's always the idea that well you want you want to swing your state you want to swing your 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 district but it can get, um, at times dis, disheartening when you're if you, I mean like if you're a Democrat in Texas or if you're a Democrat in Idaho I think it is or is is really red or if you're a Republican in mm-hmm. Maine you're not gonna you you're less inclined to vote so I think that that's one a uh, one major issue that you see and also um. I think there's also the, the the problem that many people have – sometimes they find it lengthy to, to vote. Um, they find it a, yeah. a hassle. They don't know how it works. Well, the they don't fast know food why. culture. Yeah, know, especially – but yeah. do it in one minute. Don't, don't bother. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I think I've heard one person in the club say, why can't we just vote on our smartphones? And it's like – You know, all the fraud. Well, there would be many issues <laughs> with that. Um, so – there's there's the idea that it's gonna take well it's gonna take me two hours so why should I or I don't know where I don't know where to find any inf- I don't really want to look it up so there there's many different ways and reasons that people don't want I think that there's that there's even a bigger issue and that's um I don't think people think that it matters mm-hmm. and that's a real problem because I mean voting I mean voting was the main thing that that we've been trying to strive for for like millennia in terms of go- in terms of government. I mean, talk right. about feudalism in the, in like the 1200s, you talk about right. like, you know, Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan in the 1700s. You mean the hereditary kings of France and and Germany and and England. Yeah. I mean, we've been trying so hard for so long since Athens to get our voices heard and and we seem to just be ignoring it. And that's, well, what about Tocqueville? Since you're talking France, I mean, yeah, that's that's yeah. another. But the uh, I'm surprised though because you know the Democrats are always trying to sell the myth of free education, mm-hmm. and most youths, you know, are excited about that getting a free education, not being saddled with student loans and stuff. You're about to go to college. Yeah, wouldn't mm-hmm. that be appealing to you to go vote Democrat for that? I think that there there definitely is a. Um, a certain amount of populist or a populist um, 
undertones to that. Definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, cause there's a lot of, there's a lot of people out there who um, are definitely encouraged by the idea of a free education um, of getting, um, I think they also want to, some people want to extend the insurance rate, insurance um, times, which you could be on your parents' insurance to like 26, 28, something yeah, like that. It's already 26. It's already 26. It's Obamacare, yeah. Um, so, so they're, they're, it's I guess these guys are afraid they're about to hit 30 and they're going to get kicked out of mom's basement. Yeah, yeah. that, that, that can be, um, <laughs> that can be frightening. <laughs> yeah, sitting in there playing uh, board games. <laughs> exactly. Who would, who would, who would want to uh, promote such an idea? Um, but there's definitely the, um, definitely a, a certain aspect, uh, to that, but even, even, um, amongst some voters who believe that way, you still see a, (laughs) hello, my mother. Um, there are definitely some ideas, um, that, that voting is not, is not going in the right direction in terms of, um, young people, Mm -hmm. young youth. And, I think that that's really just kind of a shame, and I feel like that's something that we really need to address fairly quickly because obviously, if if you're only getting 36% or 34% or you know 42% of uh-huh. of young voters, that's going to translate when they have jobs, when they have when it is a pain to try to vote. Um, that's going to be you're going to see that even fall even further, and that's not something that we're then have a home that most of what they have and that's, instead of you know, instead of looking for freebies and government help that's definitely a uh definitely i hope that when you grow older you can you you'll definitely get out to the polls and definitely showcase your your voice because that's that's the point of government that's the point of of you're well, talking well, well, really old people like their 30s right <laughs> yes yes people people who are getting ready for get, their walker get <laughs> um but definitely Older than my age group, do you see? You see? You do see better voters now. Careful. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. Now, you do see um, better voting trends in terms of in terms of turnout. Right. But you know. So let's go back because I am a fanatic about the electoral college. Okay. So you you kind of slid that in there. At, uh, so let, but let's not let that slide. Okay. Tell. Thinking <clears throat> and good or bad. Um, about the electoral college. Um. Because you're right, what you said. You're not. Yeah. You're, I just don't think that's a, a good enough reason to to move it. But, um, but I I am rather indifferent to the electoral, electoral <laughs> college as a as an institution, mainly because um, the electoral college itself doesn't doesn't really change the vote as much as as much as we think. So right. like, wait, 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 what I mean by that is they're faceless electors, very rare. So the electoral college in of itself does represent. The people. So nice. anyway, what the vote in Texas is is going to be the vote in terms of the electoral college. So I'm not too worried about necessarily them trying to change or rig the election in terms of that sense. Whether it whether it makes sense as a avenue to actually vote for president is a different discussion. Um, if that's the discussion you want to get into, that's we we can go through that. Um, but the fact of the matter is, it's almost going to be politically impossible. To, to rid of it, to get rid of it, mainly because small states are going to be so love the electoral college because it, well, gives, them should, more, right. it gives them more power. Yeah, like, right. I mean, Idaho and Wyoming. Well, Obama could, could just do an executive order, couldn't he? I'm not exactly sure uh, in my government class whether that's possible. I doubt. Well, it's possible, I don't know. but it, it's not legal. <laughs> uh, the only way to get rid of electoral college is to rewrite the Constitution. Yeah, so it's... You've got to remember this. When the Founding Fathers set up the Constitution, they put 
the information of elections in a way that it can't just be simply amended. All right. right. Because yeah. this is a decision of the states. Yeah, it takes three-fourths right. of the states to be able to, to amend, change it. Right. To well, not just to amend, but this is <clears throat> how we elect people. Mm-hmm. And they were very clear that Congress is not in that job of deciding how everybody gets elected to Washington. Right. That that comes from state legislatures. So mm-hmm. it's not simply an amendment process. This is something that would have to go through each and every state legislature from all 57 states. Yeah, and, and that's frankly just not – Really, I mean that that would never that would, that's a politically impossible to do. Well, Mainly because, like I said, the small states are right. going to want to geographically they have because of their statehood have more power in in the electoral college. You're so right. it would make it would make them very little sense. Well, I would argue the big states would too because places like New York and Florida and Texas wouldn't want a loser juggernaut either. Yeah, and so exactly. we all have things to protect, and that. The compromise of the Electoral College was brilliant mm-hmm, yeah. on giving states because you really think Romney – or not Romney. Oh, boy. Trump and Clinton would be going to places. You know, they already don't go to Alaska and Hawaii because yeah. it's too far too much, and yeah. there are only three delegates. Yeah. But do, would they go to Vermont and, and New Hampshire and these places if the Electoral College didn't exist? It wouldn't, it wouldn't be feasible. They would just no. buy commercials and move on, right? Yeah, exactly. They spend all their time in the high population areas because that's what counts is the population votes. Right. So I think it would change the dynamics, and I think it would be another thing we'd have buyer's remorse where we would end up regretting what we bought. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean the only, the only possible argument I could really see for trying to eliminate the Electoral College might be that – um, sometimes I think I think it happened like once, maybe that the actual popular vote did not match the president yeah, twice. Vote. Yeah, uh, twice. Okay. Yeah. So um, so those are the only that's the only main argument is that the popular popular vote just has one massive yeah. population surge. In but terms of that only districts. counts if you think the popular votes what is important. You know? mm-hmm, exactly. The game is is they all start off as an selection and they all know. That they have to come up with 240 electoral delegates to win, and there's a strategy – or 270, I'm sorry. Uh, I keep forgetting about (laughs) the other seven states that Obama added to the union uh, because we got 57 states now. So the the, the strategy is an electoral one, Mm -hmm. and if your candidate manages to get a popular vote but doesn't win the electoral, that's what we call losing. You know, because yeah, that, that wasn't the strategy. And, right. You know, yeah. and if that was, then yeah, you, you get what you. Uh, yeah. So, you know, the only people that would claim popular vote, popular vote, popular vote is the people who lost the electoral vote. But, yeah. 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 Uh huh. I think it's a it's a it's a separation of powers that the founding fathers put in, and the separation of powers isn't a separation of governmental powers. It's a separation of sovereign powers. And the electoral process was put in to separate the sovereigns of this country from the process. And it was to distribute our power throughout the entire country. Right, yeah. And it's tried to try to prevent some kind of tyranny of the yeah. majority and also the tyranny of right. government. And we didn't want a democracy. And no, we wanted So we wanted a republic. republic. Right. And, and that is a step away from government. Right. From being in charge. And yeah, because so inherently the founding fathers weren't exactly all too happy with giving the the, the election of president directly to the people. Um, yeah. That's why they in, they had these electors was because they thought that if we were to – that the popular population was to kind of mess up, we could um, – <laughs> there, there, there could be someone who would sweep in and kind of save the day with these electors. So 
So many of the founding fathers did try to make that checks and balances on on the tyranny of the masses yeah. versus how that actually plays into the government. So I, I think that's – Well, we, we're running out of time, and I keep steering you off of what you want to talk about. So let's get back to whatever it was <laughs> that you want to talk about. Um, so just talking a little bit um, – I'll just finish up a little bit on what the club really tries to Your do. Your club, yeah. Yeah, um, it's just trying – We. Um, the first session of the club was just trying to tell us, well, why should we vote? I've talked about maybe why people don't, but why should we? And I mainly stress the idea that voting is an obligation to everybody else. Like we, John Locke and Thomas Hobbes both, um, both argue that you're, you engage in a social contract Mm -hmm. with people around you. And that social contract is something that you have to your government and to the people around you. Mm -hmm. And I said that your voting is not necessarily a right. It is a right that we give you. The government's given you, but it's also an obligation you have. Duty. It's, it's, it's a duty, yeah. and they're almost. Uh, you said it, duty. Just just raising the bar of, of humor <laughs> in this in this in this radio program. Um, but the idea is that it's it's not like you don't. It's not like something you just get to pick and choose. Like uh-huh. this is something that you're obligated to do. You're you have an obligation <laughs> to. Um, to your fellow citizens to go out and vote. And I right. think that's it's interesting that all the, every candidate is always telling his supporters or her supporters or whoever supporters there are that get out and vote, get out and vote. It matters, it matters. And yet yeah. – Go um, TV is the most important thing to a candidate. Exactly. I get mean, out the vote. Get go out TV. the vote. We have whole campaigns just that have yeah. whole sections just dedicated to getting the people to the polls, make it as easy as possible, tell you where they are, and yet people still don't because I don't think people realize that it's a duty, it's a – a duty and it's an obligation to your party and to your fellow people to get out and and show your voice and be heard. I think that's something yeah. that we haven't really. See, now I would slightly reward that um, because I have, uh, but I agree with the premise 100%. Did I miss something? Something else come up? Oh, yeah, just <laughs> duty, didn't have the, duty, yeah. the the idea of loyalty to the party uh, I get concerned with because the party is just a group of people that come together with like ideas and they're supposed to be pushing like ideas. Right. And, but we unfortunately today have the two major parties mm-hmm. who have managed to monopolize the electoral system. Yeah. There's... And they're more about party than mm-hmm. they are about the constitution or, or the idea of the platform that they have. Yeah. You know, it's so true. We, t- I, I just tried to touch on this very briefly, but we, I went really into detail on this and um, in the, um, International Cooperation Class, we talked about consociational democracy versus consensual democracy versus majoritarian democracy. And what you have is we have a majoritarian democracy sort of in here in America given the two-party system and the majoritarian way we elect the president. Mm -hmm. And um, part of the um, flaws of majoritarian systems is that you have low voter turnout because people don't feel that their parties you, – you get along party dogma. You get party lines are drawn, whereas if you look in Europe, you'll have you know, the UKIP party. you have the, the, the Green Party. you have all these different parties. You have parties. 60 parties. Yeah. You have 60 different parties. But part of that also – I mean part of the benefit of having 60 different parties is that everyone can feel like they're represented. Like some people, some people don't feel like they're represented by either Democrats or Republicans right now. Right. And you they know, put coalitions together. Right. I think we're going to be moving towards that. I think know. that that's, I think that's a that's a good move because you might even see like there's no, I feel kind of bad for Libertarian supporters or Green Party supporters mm-hmm. because their their voice isn't really heard given the fact that oh, they're not. Well, I'm not I'm not saying that like that's what I'm I saying. Get you. Is, what I'm saying is that they, their candidates have a far 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 lower chance 
of getting of, elected, get, of getting elected. Almost none. Almost yeah. none. Almost no chance of getting elected. Now, whether the brilliant you, thing is, is the two parties absorb all the of, good ideas of these of the lesser parties, the so they never get any traction. Right. That's yeah. that's that's definitely so the they idea. win. It, it's like how the anti-federalists won by getting the Bill of Rights. Yes. You know, it's kind of like it's a backhanded way of winning. But right. Yeah. yeah. But you're absolutely correct on that. That the um, we have. What kind of government do we have? We have a democratic republic. See, that's what I thought you were going to say. Now, what would you say if I told you that the correct terminology is constitutionally federated republic? I would say that that's a very long definition. Well, of, only one more word of, of, than you use. I, I, would, I would ask you what, what's the major difference between what okay. between a democratic republic and what... What's democrat mean? A democrat means that someone who believes in... Democracy in terms of and what's democracy? A, democracy is election by the people. Not everybody gets a vote. Everybody has to vote on everything. Yeah. So if yeah. you want to add paper clips to the government support, right, you, you have to go out and vote. Yeah. We already have voter fatigue when we vote two times a year, and right, people exactly. are complaining it's too much. So right. I don't think a real democracy would work. And no, the no, founding fathers called it mob rule. They yeah, did not like it democracy. It barely worked in Athens. So I hate the word democracy uh, for the same reason the founders did. We have a constitutionally federated republic. You take any of those words away, you lose the definition of government. You add anything to it, you're, you're just putting icing on the cake. We have a constitution that runs our government, right? We have a – you're in her, you're in uh, her spot. Yeah. Oh, sorry. She's trying to hit her mark. <laughs> you have a constitution which guides government, controls and limits it. You're federated, which we are no longer, but federation – was a federated government of the state governments co-equal to the the centralized government. Right. And we are a republic, whereas the sovereigns of the country, which are us, and that makes us unique in most countries, we pick people to go out and represent us, to serve us, to do the dirty political jobs that have to be done so that we can go, so we can go and get out with our lives. Right. And that's, that's so important. And most political science teachers don't even know that that's what kind of government we have. And they come up with all kinds of trying, you know, meritocracies, you know, and, and, and other words that they throw in democracies. And uh, I'm, I even have people who come on try to argue that we're in a theocracy because the Christian right runs everything. And, you know, and it's just simply balderdash. What is on paper is a constitutionally federated republic. What we have in action is all the way different. Right. And, and I don't even know how to describe what we have because, you know, we have all these checks and balances and everything, but but you have a, a tyranny out of the White House, which was enabled because of the progressives who came over as Fabian Socialists and then sold us on a bag of goods to hire a professional class of bureaucrats to run our government. And that and so they're unelected, unappointed, and they have nothing to do with we the people, and they fall under the executive branch. And this is how we have all these regulations where if you go out and, and spit on your land, it's declared a wetland to protect some snail that's walking across it. And uh, so I think the fact that because we don't know we're a constitutionally federated government, mm -hmm, republic, right. then it's easier to allow other things. This is why they pushed that word democracy, the, the Fabian socialists did, uh, which they call, were called progressives is what they came over here and called themselves. And, uh, and so they pushed all these words to change how we saw things. And then they passed things like you know the 17th Amendment and stuff. They got rid of us picking our own senators with our state legislatures and hiring them like representatives and whatnot. Yeah. And that changed the whole dynamic. Now, a reason I brought this up was I always like a chance to talk about Constitution Federated Republics, <laughs> something you can bring back to your class after you think about it. Right. But 
economic federalism. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, we talked. Uh, yeah, a long way around, but we got there. Yeah, we. Um, <laughs> so just briefly, we talked. Um, I talked to slightly about um, the, the the Harvard Summer School at, and the Cold War, and under the International Conflict and Cooperation class, I was required to write a. You, uh, what was that? International Conflict and Cooperation class. Do they like have pancakes too? No, they, it's not. Like, it's, not it's not the International House of Pancakes. Oh. That's that's a different that's a different thing. Although I did dine quite a bit at International House of Pancakes while I was up there because they have some really good French toast. Just saying, French, again, French back toast. To the French. Back to French toast. If you're at International House of Pancakes, don't don't sleep on the French toast. Um, that's just an odd IHOP riff. <laughs> but um, hmm. the um, at at International Conference and Cooperation class we had. I had to write, and they were given a, a list of stuff that I could write about, or you could pick one, something you wanted to write about. So I picked um, one on the um, fiscal federalism and its effect on jurisdictional inequality in developed and underdeveloped countries. So basically, in lame, in normal people's terms, mm-hmm. that's um, how does economic decentralization of government either help or hurt how money is distributed between jurisdictions? So. Um, I like to use the anecdotal evidence of Detroit. Um, we have a certain amount of jurisdictional um, decentralization in terms of how this works out. So Barry Weingast in 1985 published something called um, the how, market preserve, do, how, do, how to Preserve Market Preserving Federalism. And the idea is, is that if you allow – Wait, how to preserve how to preserve market- how to preserve market preserving federalism? It, yeah. It's it's basically it's basically a theory. Like it's basically just, just something like that. It's something around that terms. But anyway, he he puts forth his four points of market preserving federalism, uh-huh. and the and if I can remember them correctly, they are um, to have um, economic regulation given to a jurisdiction, have a strict budget cap, to um, mm. not allow tr- trade barriers between jurisdictions, right. and um, allow freedom of movement of people. And so, it sounds like that's already in the Constitution. It probably is. A, <laughs> all those are points all, of the Constitution. Yeah. Points of Constitution. Right. But the idea is that right. if you allow if you allow regulation into smaller smaller jurisdictions, mm-hmm. they can better craft um, policies and regulatory um, laws to fit that jurisdiction. So, Wait, like you're it, talking local. Local. The yeah. problem is, is that while that's all in the Constitution, the bureaucracies of the central government mm-hmm. are the ones that are over-regulating and controlling these things. Exactly. So, yeah. so one guess would say that that, that that inhibits economic growth. Just today I saw a report. They were talking about how state uh, – I'm not state, but cities, mm-hmm. like Halton City where we broadcast out of, they can't put a school, an elementary school, without first getting permission from the central government mm-hmm. on whether or not it's in an ethnic neighborhood, if they have mm-hmm. the right amount of school right. kids there, the right flow of, of – yeah. It just amazes me that that a city in a state would have to look to Washington D.C. to figure out where. And he only does this the next issue. So I'm not exactly sure about, about, this, about, the, about the social, but but at least but at least in terms of economic terms, he says that if you allow regulation to go to those specific states. Mm-hmm. If one jurisdiction is doing a terrible job of something, you can allow these jurisdictions to have competition for um, people and also for um, businesses. Mm-hmm. So like I, like I mentioned Detroit, Detroit had a, a run of terrible mayors, and eventually the city went completely bankrupt given the fact that the, just the terrible policymaking. 
And you also see or the, all the point that they've all been Democrat mayors. I know that he's not getting into the politics, but right. we can't take that out of the equation that it's a certain mindset that goes with the yeah. job. Yeah. yeah. Well, all the automakers got the got out of town, right. and all the people got out of town. There's a mass flood of people just exiting Detroit, and you just saw a desolation, and that's why you have all those... It looks like this, Hiroshima yeah, after it, we dropped the bomb. Yeah, it looks terrible yeah. in there. Yeah. And so what you see is that that's market preserving federalism working, because once once some once new mayors got in that knew what the heck yeah, they no were doing. To the man behind the curtain. Okay, there's yeah. that. That's right. Uh, there's a, a not a real curtain. It's Thomas a, Jefferson put a veil of separation right there. Exactly. Exactly. It's not a, not a real one, but <laughs> no. I'm going to pretend it's there. Yes. Um, you're you're young. You're computer savvy, right? Yeah. So we'll, what do they call that? A uh, firewall. Yeah, firewall. <laughs> we'll do that. All right, we'll put a firewall. There. <laughs> okay, but um, the idea is um, well, you got some decent mayors in there, and they've made more pro. Pro business and pro, um, you know, yeah, less yeah, government, yeah, yeah, yeah less, 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 less regulations over over business. <clears throat> you saw automakers going back in there. You're right. seeing some rejuvenation of the inner city. So what the, sorry, yeah, hey guys. So the idea of market preserving federalism is is kind of shown in this example in terms of how the policymakers are able to be in competition with one another for businesses and four different people. And so by putting them in those competitions, you can kind of create good economic growth and good social policies because any kind of bad leadership would get immediately voted out or people would just piss people or businesses would just simply move. So that's my, uh, that's the short version of, of Barry Weingast's market preserving federalism. <laughs> and speaking of short versions, you only wrote a, a token 40 page thesis. on Yeah. Just, yeah, just, yeah. just, just a, just a yeah. small little. Well, that take uh, you about an hour. Yeah, just like just yeah. like 30, 40 minutes. Just, yeah, just about about a couple <laughs> a couple of minutes a page, no problem. So. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's all cited and stuff. It's got a, a work cited. I think about five to six pages long. So definitely, um, definitely a. I wouldn't say it's a tome, but I hope to hope to publish one. Uh, on something like this in the in the future. So. You know the neat thing about academic writings? I have about 50 published academic writings, and I imagine that that's about how many people have actually read it, too. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But, hey, it makes you feel it good. It makes you feel good, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that you spent a, a year on a 40-page paper Yeah. That, uh, that 10 people read. <laughs> <laughs> I think they've actually done something that the average people who read scientific papers are like four. Yeah, four yeah. percent. No, no, four people. Four people. No, four people. Because <laughs> yeah. it's that technical and that specific that it just doesn't do you any good for anybody else to read it. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, that's that's it. There's a there's a lot of there's a new trend. Uh, there was a book in the seventies wrote called The Time on the Cross, and the short version is it's a theory that every country has its time on the cross. Everything on time, you know, on slavery issues, but then they wrote a book for academics mm. only, and it was a smaller book, but it was full of all the notes and background and right, things yeah. you can check. And so an academic like me could go through it and check everything that they said. Yeah. But they realized that laity would not want to do that, and so they wrote a book that was more like roots than it was an academic tomb. And that's right. that's kind of clever, I think, to, yeah. to do something like to that. To publish two different kind of yeah. works on the same same topic. We'll right. talk about that book sometime else. Uh, but So tell us about your thesis, and why did you have to write it? What? Um, just uh, just in terms of time, so we'll try to we'll try to keep oh, this. Time. you got to go. Oh, let's keep, try to keep Oh, this. we're already over an hour. Oh, yeah. my goodness. All right. 
quickly. Oh, yeah, so quickly, quickly, I've already discussed a little bit about it, but um, I said that there's three reasons why France fell. One was the dysfunction of the French leadership, um, their inability to to coordinate an effective counterattack, and um, because of the French army was uh, insufficient to to thwart the German attacks. For the threat that they faced. Yes, exactly. It was great for the threat of World War Which I. One? And that's World something War. that actually wasn't all bad, because in World War II, when that happened, the American military learned that we always fight the last war. And that's all we can. We prepare for what we did last time. Yes. And so now we war game and we try to come up with different things. Yeah. And so it, it, we're at least learning from those mistakes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So your game... It is um, available for sale for people who already um, own a game called Axis and Allies. Mm -hmm. Um, It's based – it's a variant of Axis and Allies. It has a a rule book. It has a board game, a map itself, and um, a set of combat cards which factor in some politics and some different weather Initial ideas would try to put you in the mind of the commander in terms. And don't of, blow over the politics. That's a big part of the game, yeah, right? Because it takes what's going on. What's going on? And all the, the people time. who made all these decisions, good yeah. and bad, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so, so um, all that stuff, which is which is really fun to make and really fun to play, and then um, that's that can be seen on France1940.com. You can kind of read all about it there. So that's kind of where that's at, and. Um, yeah. But that's only if you have um, like games like Flames of War, I think also is another one, or Axis and Allies, or um, games, war games, historical war games like that, because um, well, I haven't minted my own pieces. You just got the game going, so yeah. now eventually you can go and look at that, and China's begging to have some prison labor to make your game pieces for you. So <laughs> Perhaps. Mom must be proud. Are you proud, Mom? There's a firewall here. Um, so, oh. so we can't, yes. she can't see. Well, we're, can't. we're talking about you're talking about her favorite son. Oh, right. Yeah, yes. exactly. No, the one that yell. Yeah, she's real proud. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, Mom's proud. Trust me. And she has every right to be. She raised two fantastic young men who are productive members of society. And why, when I look at the Utes of America, I don't see it as bad as a lot of people do. You know, these millennials and, and whatever, Generation Zs and stuff. Uh, but we got guys like this who, I mean, listen to him. What we just He just talked an hour about stuff, kept up with me toe-to-toe, and he's a high school kid. Now, go to any of your local public high schools, and I defy you to find a student like that. You might find one diamond in the rough at uh, – but my daughter, you know, was the same, uh, going from All Saints, and and Shawn Michael went to All Saints, and uh, and it's not just All Saints, but it's it's private schools and home schools. You find kids like this. This is not unique. This is ubiquitous in that environment, and um, and so that's where the leadership will be coming from in the future. Those are going to be the people that replace me because I'm too old to do this stuff now. And so they'll be replacing us in the decade. And my faith in America. Anything you want to talk about? No, I just want to say uh, thanks for evidently your dad's hungry. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, He's coming back, but uh, I, thanks for uh, me. Oh, sweet. Spaghetti on Friday, so it should be really Oh, good man, today. spaghetti. You went all the way home for this? I did. Oh, God. <laughs> I had an evening. Oh, well, thank you. 
yes, I've been eating junk since I've been in the hospital all week. It, uh, you know, oh, that's sweet. Everybody, I got spaghetti and meat sauce. Yum. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, I just want to say thanks for letting me come on and talk about it. So I appreciate it. Thanks yeah. so much. So anything you didn't talk about that we wanted to? Uh, no, I think that's the thing we got everything covered. So yeah. I appreciate it. Well, let me know, guys. Want him back? I bet I bet you do. Uh, send me emails. I think uh, I think it was a lot of fun. Yay. <laughs> Amanda <laughs> likes you. Amanda's in Halton City, too, by the way. So that's a local. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll come on anytime you want to talk about stuff. Now, your club. Yes, you sir. didn't. You didn't talk about the club club part of it. You just talked about talking. About yeah. It. You want to give them a plug? Um. Yes. Yeah, so it's just. I mean, in terms of it's just like we just kind of meet at lunch. It's a very. We try to have an informal, formal kind of setting. We don't want to try to make it too. Too. Okay. Let's be honest. You can't sit at the cool kid table or the exactly. football table. So you created. So yeah. A geek exactly. Table. Exactly. Yes. Like you just you just described my entire club better than I could have. See. In just about a sentence. <laughs> So um, I feel like we can just leave it at that. Yeah, we'll just leave it there. So uh, I like that because you, know, you guys are talking politics. Whether they're all conservative or all liberal doesn't really matter. The fact that they're engaged yes. is what's important. That's, that's, really, that's yeah. really what we're trying to And if you're to receptive yes. uh, to listen to other people's viewpoints, too often we find everybody just waiting for the next person to shut up so they can make their point. Exactly. You know, and they don't really receive anything. Right. Yeah. It's, it's trying to, trying to engage in a debate and yeah. engage in the actual learning. So that, that's the point. And persuasive debate. Yes. Yeah. 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 So it's like, right. Amanda yeah. says it's a discussion. discussion. Yeah. Exactly discussion. right. All right, guys. Uh, I would, I would invite questions and stuff, but uh, we, they need to hit the road. And uh, father Daryl is, which is of course my preacher. He's, he's been on the road. Did he go to Yale? Oh, we went over to Dallas. Oh, well, at least he still needed a passport there. So, uh, yep, I have so many people I talk online that uh, and they think if it's not, if they think it's not okay. Yeah, that's true. Everybody thinks that their opinion. You know, we all believe in the freedom to have an opinion as long as it's mine. And, uh, <laughs> I just happen to be right. But. <laughs> well, Sean Michael, thank you. Thank you, sir. Appreciate Mrs. Pigeon, thank you for bringing you your son. Much. This was a blast. We got to do more. Yes, sir. And if Appreciate you want, I'll make an invitation that you find your counterpart in your club, and you can come on the show, and we'll do an hour discussion with the two of you. Okay, that would be fun. That yeah. would be fun. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. Well, great Appreciate guys. It. Everybody, right, yeah. I am dead tired. I've been on the hospital all week, so I'm going to call it quits too. And uh, say goodnight to everybody. This has been the Underground Professor Show, UGP Radio, copyright in the year of your Lord, 2016, via Contoodles, y'all. Bye. <laughs> Bye, guys. See you. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.